Hello and welcome to all you ghost goblins and things that go bump in the night to a very special cozy Christmas podcast presentation of stories for Halloween. Regular listeners will know that on my podcast, I love to celebrate the cozier side of Christmas. But since it's Halloween, I thought I would take the opportunity instead of bringing comfort to bring you shivers. <laughs> Between now and Halloween, I'm going to be releasing a couple of bonus stories that will help get you in the mood for Halloween. Uh, my plan right now is to release three in total, and so this will be the first one. And today's story is called The Tapestried Chamber by Sir Walter Scott. As you'll hear in his introduction, Sir Walter Scott suggests that these kinds of stories work well in print, but work so much better as stories to be read aloud, preferably at night next to a blazing fire. And this is what, in fact, many Victorians would do at Christmas time, nonetheless. They would gather around their fire, their hearth, and they would tell ghost stories late into the night. It seems like an odd Christmas tradition for us, but they did not have Halloween back then. And so without further ado, I welcome you to enjoy this story, The Tapestried Chamber by Sir Walter Scott. The following narrative is given from the pen, so far as memory permits, in the same character in which it was presented to the author's ear. Nor has he claim to further praise, or to be more deeply censured, than in proportion to the good or bad judgment which he has employed in selecting his materials, as he has studiously avoided any attempt at ornament which might interfere with the simplicity of the tale. At the same time, it must be admitted that the particular class of stories which turns on the marvelous possesses a stronger influence when told than when committed to print. The volume taken up at noonday, though rehearsing the same incidents, conveys a much more feeble impression than is achieved by the voice of the speaker on a circle of fireside auditors, who hang upon the narrative as the narrator details the minute incidents which serve to give it authenticity and lowers his voice with an affectation of mystery while he approaches the fearful and wonderful part. It was with such advantages that the present writer heard the following events related more than twenty years since by the celebrated Miss Seward of Litchfield, who, to her numerous accomplishments, added, in a remarkable degree, the power of narrative in private conversation. In its present form, the tale must necessarily lose all the interest which was attached to it by the flexible voice and intelligent features of the gifted narrator. Yet still, read aloud to an undoubting audience by the doubtful light of the closing evening, or in silence by a decaying taper, and amidst the solitude of a half-lighted apartment, it may redeem its character as a good ghost story. Miss Seward always affirmed that she had derived her information from an authentic source, although she suppressed the names of the two persons chiefly concerned. I will not avail myself of any particulars I may have since received concerning the localities of the detail, but suffer them to rest under the same general description in which they were first related to me, 
and for the same reason I will not add to or diminish the narrative by any circumstance, whether more or less material, but simply rehearse, as I heard it, a story of supernatural terror. About the end of the American War, when the officers of Lord Cornwallis's army, which surrendered at Yorktown, and others, who had been made prisoners during the impolitic and ill-fated controversy, were returning to their own country to relate their adventures and repose themselves after their fatigues, there was amongst them a general officer to whom Miss S. gave the name of Brown, but merely, as I understood, to save the inconvenience of introducing a nameless agent in the narrative. He was an officer of merit as well as a gentleman of high consideration for family and attainments. Some business had carried General Brown upon a tour through the western counties, when, in the conclusion of a morning stage, he found himself in the vicinity of a small country town, which presented a scene of uncommon beauty and of a character peculiarly English. The little town, with its stately old church, whose tower bore testimony to the devotion of ages long past, lay amidst pastures and cornfields of small extent, but bounded and divided with hedgerow timber of great age and size. There were few marks of modern improvement. The environs of the place intimated neither the solitude of decay nor the bustle of novelty. The houses were old, but in good repair, and the beautiful little river murmured freely on its way to the left of the town, neither restrained by a dam nor bordered by a towing path. Upon a gentle eminence, nearly a mile to the southward of the town, were seen, amongst many venerable oaks and tangled thickets, the turrets of a castle as old as the walls of York and Lancaster, but which seemed to have received important alterations during the age of Elizabeth and her successor. It had not been a place of great size, but whatever accommodation it formerly afforded was, it must be supposed, still to be obtained within its walls. At least such was the inference which General Brown drew from observing the smoke arise merrily from several of the ancient wreathed and carved chimney stalks. The wall of the park ran alongside of the highway for two or three hundred yards, and through the different points by which the eye found glimpses into the woodland scenery, it seemed to be well stocked. Other points of view opened in succession, now a full one of the front of the old castle, and now a side glimpse at its particular towers the former rich in all the strangeness of the Elizabethan school, while the simple and solid strength of other parts of the building seemed to show that they had been raised more for defense than ostentation. Delighted with the partial glimpses which he obtained of the castle through the woods and glades by which this ancient feudal fortress was surrounded, our military traveler was determined to inquire whether it might not deserve a nearer view and whether it contained family pictures or other objects of curiosity worthy of a stranger's visit. When leaving the vicinity of the park, he rolled through a clean and well-paved street and stopped at the door of a well-frequented inn. Before ordering horses to proceed on his journey, General Brown made inquiries concerning the proprietor of the chateau, which had so attracted his admiration, and was equally surprised and pleased at hearing in reply a nobleman named whom we shall call Lord Woodville. How fortunate! Much of Brown's early recollections, both at school and at college, had been connected with young Woodville, whom, by a few questions, he now ascertained to be the same with the owner of this fair domain. He had been raised 
to the peerage by the decease of his father a few months before, and as the general learned from the landlord, the term of mourning being ended was now taking possession of his paternal estate in the jovial season of merry autumn, accompanied by a select party of friends to enjoy the sports of a country famous for game. This was delightful news to our traveler. Frank Woodville had been Richard Brown's chosen intimate at Christchurch. Their pleasures and their tasks had been the same, and the honest soldier's heart warmed to find his early friend in possession of so delightful a residence, and of an estate, as the landlord assured him with a nod and a wink, fully adequate to maintain and add to his dignity. Nothing was more natural than that the traveler should suspend a journey, which there was nothing to render hurried, to pay a visit to an old friend under such agreeable circumstances. The fresh horses, therefore, had only the brief task of conveying the general's traveling carriage to Woodville Castle. A porter admitted them at a modern Gothic lodge, built in that style to correspond with the castle itself, and at the same time rang a bell to give warning of the approach of visitors. Apparently the sound of the bell had suspended the separation of the company, bent on the various amusements of the morning, for, on entering the court of the chateau, several young men were lounging about in their sporting dresses, looking at and criticizing the dogs which the keepers held in readiness to attend their pastime. As General Brown alighted, the young lord came to the gate of the hall, and for an instant gazed, as at a stranger, upon the countenance of his friend, on which war, with its fatigues and its wounds, had made a great alteration. But the uncertainty lasted no longer than till the visitor had spoken, and the hearty greeting which followed was such as can only be exchanged betwixt those who have passed together the merry days of careless boyhood or early youth. "'If I could have formed a wish, my dear Brown,' said Lord Woodville, "'it would have been to have you here, of all men, upon this occasion, which my friends are good enough to hold as a sort of holiday. Do you think you have been unwatched during the years you have been absent from us?' I have traced you through your dangers, your triumphs, your misfortunes, and was delighted to see that, whether in victory or defeat, the name of my old friend was always distinguished with applause. The general made a suitable reply and congratulated his friend on his new dignities and the possession of a place and domain so beautiful. Nay, you have seen nothing of it as yet, said Lord Woodville, and I trust you do not mean to leave us till you are better acquainted with it. It is true, I confess, that my present party is pretty large, and the old house, like other places of the kind, does not possess so much accommodation as the extent of the outward walls appears to promise. But we can give you a comfortable, old-fashioned room, and I venture to suppose that your campaigns have taught you to be glad of worse quarters. The general shrugged his shoulders and laughed. Ha <laughs> ha! I presume, he said. The worst apartment in your chateau is considerably superior to the old Tabasco cask in which I was fain to take up my night's lodging when I was in the bush, as the Virginians call it, with the light core. There I lay, like Diogenes himself, so delighted with my covering from the elements that I made a vain attempt to have it rolled on to my next quarters. But my commander for the time would give way to no such luxurious provision, and I took farewell of my beloved cask with tears in my eyes. "'Well, then, since you do not fear your quarters,' said Lord Woodville, "'you will stay with me a week, at least. "'Of guns, dogs, fishing-rods, flies, and means of sport by sea and land, "'we have enough and to spare. "'You cannot pitch on an amusement, but we will find the means of pursuing it. "'But if you prefer the gun and pointers, I will go with you myself, 
and see whether you have mended your shooting since you have been amongst the Indians of the back settlements. The general gladly accepted his friendly host's proposal in all its points. After a morning of manly exercise, the company met at dinner, where it was the delight of Lord Woodville to conduce to the display of the high properties of his recovered friend, so as to recommend him to his guests, most of whom were persons of distinction. He led General Brown to speak of the scenes he had witnessed, and as every word marked alike the brave officer and the sensible man who retained possession of his cool judgment, under the most imminent dangers, the company looked upon the soldier with general respect, as on one who had proved himself possessed of an uncommon portion of personal courage, that attribute of all others of which everybody desires to be thought possessed. The day at Woodville Castle ended as usual in such mansions. The hospitality stopped within the limits of good order. Music, in which the young lord was a proficient, succeeded to the circulation of the bottle, cards, and billiards, for those who preferred such amusements, were in readiness, but the exercise of the morning required early hours, and not long after eleven o'clock the guests began to retire to their several apartments. The young lord himself conducted his friend, General Brown, to the chamber destined for him, which answered the description he had given of it, being comfortable but old-fashioned. The bed was of the massive form used in the end of the 17th century, and the curtains of faded silk, heavily trimmed with tarnished gold. But then the sheets, pillows, and blankets looked delightful to the campaigner when he thought of his mansion, the cask. There was an air of gloom in the tapestry hangings, which, with their worn-out graces, curtained the walls of the little chamber and gently undulated as the autumnal breeze found its way through the ancient lattice window, which pattered and whistled as the air gained entrance. The toilet, too, with its mirror, turbaned after the manner of the beginning of the century, with a coif of murray-colored silk and its hundred strange-shaped boxes, providing for arrangements which had been obsolete for more than fifty years, had an antique and in so far a melancholy aspect. But nothing could blaze more brightly and cheerfully than the two large wax candles, or if aught could rival them, it was the flaming, bickering fats in the chimney that sent at once their gleam and their warmth through the snug apartment, which, notwithstanding the general antiquity of its appearance, was not wanting in the least convenience that modern habits rendered either necessary or desirable. This is an old-fashioned sleeping apartment, General, said the young lord, but I hope you find nothing that makes you envy your old tobacco cask. I am not particular respecting my lodgings, replied the general, yet were I to make any choice, I would prefer this chamber by many degrees to the gayer and more modern rooms of your family mansion. Believe me that, when I unite its modern air of comfort with its venerable antiquity, and recollect that it is your lordship's property, I shall feel in better quarters here than if I were in the best hotel London could afford. I trust, I have no doubt, that you will find yourself as comfortable as I wish you, my dear general, said the young nobleman, and once more bidding his guest good night, he shook him by the hand and withdrew. The general once more looked round him, and internally congratulating himself on his return to peaceful life, the comforts of which were endeared by the recollection of the hardships and dangers he had lately sustained, undressed himself and prepared for a luxurious night's rest. Here, contrary to the custom of this species of tale, we leave the general in possession of his apartment until the next morning.
The company assembled for breakfast at an early hour, but without the appearance of General Brown, who seemed the guest that Lord Woodville was desirous of honoring above all whom his hospitality had assembled around him. He more than once expressed surprise at the general's absence, and at length sent a servant to make inquiry after him. The man brought back information that General Brown had been walking abroad since an early hour of the morning, in defiance of the weather, which was misty and ungenial. The custom of a soldier, said the young nobleman to his friends. Many of them acquire habitual vigilance and cannot sleep after the early hour at which their duty usually commands them to be alert. Yet the explanation which Lord Woodville thus offered to the company seemed hardly satisfactory to his own mind, and it was in a fit of silence and abstraction that he waited the return of the general. It took place near an hour after the breakfast bell had rung. He looked fatigued and feverish. His hair, the pattering and arrangement of which was at this time one of the most important occupations of a man's whole day, and marked his fashion as much as in the present time the tying of a cravat, or the want of one, was disheveled, uncurled, void of powder, and dank with dew. His clothes were huddled on with a careless negligence, remarkable in a military man, whose real or supposed duties are usually held to include some attention to the toilet, and his looks were haggard and ghastly in a peculiar degree. "'So you have stolen a march upon us this morning, my dear general,' said Lord Woodville. "'Or you have not found your bed so much to your mind as I had hoped and you seemed to expect. How did you rest last night?' "'Oh, excellently well, remarkably well, never better in my life,' said General Brown rapidly, and yet with an air of embarrassment which was obvious to his friend. He then hastily swallowed a cup of tea, and neglecting or refusing whatever else was offered, seemed to fall into a fit of abstraction. "'You will take the gun today, General?' said his friend and host, but had to repeat the question twice ere he received the abrupt answer. No, my lord, I am sorry I cannot have the opportunity of spending another day with your lordship. My post horses are ordered and will be here directly. All who were present showed surprise, and Lord Woodville immediately replied, Post horses, my good friend, what can you possibly want with them when you promised to stay with me quietly for at least a week? I believe, said the general, obviously much embarrassed, that I might, in the pleasure of my first meeting with your lordship, have said something about stopping here a few days. Uh, but I have since found it altogether impossible. That is very extraordinary, answered the young nobleman. You seemed quite disengaged yesterday, and you cannot have had a summons today, for our post has not come up from the town, and therefore you cannot have received any letters. General Brown, without giving any further explanation, muttered something about indispensable business and insisted on the absolute necessity of his departure in a manner which silenced all opposition on the part of his host, who saw that his resolution was taken and forbore all further importunity. At least, however, he said, permit me, my dear Brown, since go you will, or must, to show you the view from the terrace, which the mist, that is now rising, will soon display. He threw open a sash window and stepped down upon the terrace as he spoke. The general followed him mechanically, but seemed little to attend to what his host was saying, as, Looking across the extended and rich prospect, he pointed out the different objects worthy of observation. Thus they moved on till Lord Woodville had attained his purpose of drawing his guest entirely apart from the rest of the company, when, turning around upon him with an air of great solemnity, he addressed him thus, "'Richard Brown, my old and very dear friend, we are now alone. 
Let me conjure you to answer me upon the word of a friend in the honor of a soldier. How did you in reality rest during last night? Most wretchedly indeed, my lord, answered the general, in the same tone of solemnity, so miserably that I would not run the risk of such a second night, not only for all the lands belonging to this castle, but for all the country which I see from this elevated point of view. This is most extraordinary, said the young lord, as if speaking to himself. Then there must be something in the reports concerning the apartment. Again, turning to the general, he said, For God's sakes, my dear friend, be candid with me, and let me know the disagreeable particulars which have befallen you under a roof, where, with consent of the owner, you should have met nothing save comfort. The general seemed distressed by this appeal, and paused a moment before he replied, My dear lord, he at length said, what happened to me last night is of a nature so peculiar and so unpleasant that I could hardly bring myself to detail it even to your lordship, were it not that, independent of my wish to gratify any request of yours, I think that sincerity on my part may lead to some explanation about a circumstance equally painful and mysterious. To others, the communication I am about to make might place me in the light of a weak-minded superstitious fool who suffered his own imagination to delude and bewilder him. But you have known me in childhood and youth, and will not suspect me of having adopted in manhood the feelings and frailties from which my early years were free. Here he paused, and his friend replied, Do not doubt my perfect confidence in the truth of your communication, however strange it may be, replied Lord Woodville. I know your firmness of disposition too well to suspect you could be made the object of imposition and am aware that your honor and your friendship will equally deter you from exaggerating whatever you may have witnessed. Well then, said the general, I will proceed with my story as well as I can, relying upon your candor, and yet distinctly feeling that I would rather face a battery than recall to my mind the odious recollections of last night. He paused a second time, and then perceiving that Lord Woodville remained silent and in an attitude of attention, he commenced, though not without obvious reluctance, the history of his night's adventures in the tapestried chamber. I undressed and went to bed so soon as your lordship left me yesterday evening. But the wood in the chimney, which nearly fronted my bed, blazed brightly and cheerfully, and, aided by a hundred exciting recollections of my childhood and youth, which had been recalled by the unexpected pleasure of meeting your lordship, prevented me from falling immediately asleep. I ought, however, to say that these reflections were all of a pleasant and agreeable kind, grounded on a sense of having, for a time, exchanged the labor, fatigues, and the dangers of my profession for the enjoyments of a peaceful life, and the reunion of those friendly and affectionate ties which I had torn asunder at the rude summons of war. While such pleasing reflections were stealing over my mind and gradually lulling me to slumber, I was suddenly aroused by a sound like that of the rustling of a silken gown, and the tapping of a pair of high-heeled shoes, as if a woman were walking in the apartment. Ere I could draw the curtain to see what the matter was, the figure of a little woman passed between the bed and the fire. The back of this form was turned to me, and I could observe, from the shoulders and neck, it was that of an old woman whose dress was an old-fashioned gown which I think ladies call a sock, that is, a sort of robe completely loose in the body, but gathered into broad plates upon the neck and shoulders. 
which fall down to the ground and terminate in a species of train. I thought the intrusion singular enough, but never harbored for a moment the idea that what I saw was anything more than the mortal form of some old woman about the establishment, who had a fancy to dress like her grandmother, and who, having perhaps, as your lordship mentioned that you were rather straightened for room, been dislodged from her chamber for my accommodation, had forgotten the circumstance and returned by twelve to her old haunt. Under this persuasion I moved myself in bed and coughed a little, to make the intruder sensible of my being in possession of the premises. She turned slowly around. But gracious heaven! My lord, what a countenance did she display to me! There was no longer any question what she was, or any thought of her being a living being. Upon a face which wore the fixed features of a corpse, which imprinted the traces of the vilest and most hideous passions which had animated her while she lived. The body of some atrocious criminal seemed to have been given up from the grave, and the soul restored from the penal fire, in order to form for a space a union with the ancient accomplice of its guilt. I started up in bed and sat upright, supporting myself on my palms, as I gazed at this horrible specter. The hag made, as it seemed, a single and swift stride to the bed where I lay and squatted herself down upon it, in precisely the same attitude which I had assumed in the extremity of horror, advancing her diabolical countenance within half a yard of mine with a grin which seemed to intimate the malice and the derision of an incarnate fiend. General Brown stopped and wiped from his brow the cold perspiration with which the recollection of his horrible vision had covered it. My lord? he said. I am no coward. I have been in all the mortal dangers incidental to my profession, and I may truly boast that no man ever knew Richard Brown dishonor the sword he wears. But in these horrible circumstances, under the eyes, and as it seemed almost in the grasp of an incarnation of an evil spirit, all firmness forsook me, all manhood melted from me like wax in the furnace, and I felt my hair individually bristle, the current of my lifeblood ceased to flow and I sank back in a swoon, as very a victim to panic terror as ever was a village girl or a child of ten years old. How long I lay in this condition I cannot pretend to guess. But I was roused by the castle clock striking one, so loud that it seemed as if it were in the very room. It was some time before I dared open my eyes, lest they should again encounter the horrible spectacle. When, however, I summoned courage to look up, she was no longer visible. My first idea was to pull my bell, wake the servants, and remove to a garret or a hayloft to be insured against a second visitation. Nay, I will confess the truth that my resolution was altered, not by the shame of exposing myself, but by the fear that, as the bell cord hung by the chimney, I might, in making my way to it, be again crossed by the fiendish hag who, I figured to myself, might be still lurking about some corner of the apartment. I will not pretend to describe what hot and cold fever fits tormented me for the rest of the night, through broken sleep, weary vigils, and that dubious state which forms the neutral ground between them. A hundred terrible objects appeared to haunt me, but there was the great difference betwixt the vision which I have described and those which followed, that I knew the last to be deceptions of my own fancy and over-excited nerves. Day at last appeared, and I rose from my bed, ill in health and humiliated in mind, 
I was ashamed of myself as a man and a soldier, and still more so at feeling my own extreme desire to escape from the haunted apartment, which, however, conquered all the considerations, so that, huddling on my clothes with the most careless haste, I made my escape from your lordship's mansion, to seek in the open air some relief to my nervous system. Shaken as it was by this horrible encounter with a visitant, for such as I must believe her, from the other world. Your lordship has now heard the cause of my discomposure, and of my sudden desire to leave your hospitable castle. In other places, I trust, we may often meet, but God protect me from ever spending a second night under that roof. Strange as the general's tale was, he spoke with such a deep air of conviction that it cut short all the unusual commentaries which are made on such stories. Lord Woodville never once asked him if he was sure he did not dream of the apparition, or suggested any of the possibilities by which it is fashionable to explain supernatural appearances as wild vagaries of the fancy, or deceptions of the optic nerves. On the contrary, he seemed deeply impressed with the truth and reality of what he had heard, and after a considerable pause, regretted with such appearance of sincerity that his early friend should in his house have suffered so severely. I am the more sorry for your pain, my dear Brown, he continued, that it is the unhappy, though most unexpected, result of an experiment of my own. You must know that, from my father and grandfather's time, at least, the apartment which was assigned to you last night had been shut on account of reports that it was disturbed by supernatural sights and noises. When I came, a few weeks since, into possession of the estate, I thought the accommodation which the castle afforded for my friends was not extensive enough to permit the inhabitants of the invisible world to retain possession of a comfortable sleeping apartment. I therefore caused the tapestried chamber, as we call it, to be opened, and without destroying its air of antiquity, I had such new articles of furniture placed in it as became the modern times. Yet, as the opinion that the room was haunted very strongly prevailed among the domestics, and was also known in the neighborhood and to many of my friends, I feared some prejudice might be entertained by the first occupant of the tapestried chamber, which might tend to revive the evil report which it had labored under, and so disappoint my purpose of rendering it a useful part of the house. I must confess, my dear Brown, that your arrival yesterday, agreeable to me for a thousand reasons besides, seemed the most favorable opportunity of removing the unpleasant rumors which attached to the room, since your courage was indubitable and your mind free of any preoccupation on the subject. I could not, therefore, have chosen a more fitting subject for my experiment. Upon my life, said General Brown somewhat hastily, I am infinitely obliged to your lordship, very particularly indebted indeed. I am likely to remember for some time the consequences of the experiment, as your lordship is pleased to call it. Nay, now you are unjust, my dear friend, said Lord Woodville. You have only to reflect for a single moment in order to be convinced that I could not augur the possibility of the pain to which you have been so unhappily exposed. I was yesterday morning a complete skeptic on the subject of supernatural appearances. Nay, I am sure that, had I told you what was said about that room, those very reports would have induced you, by your own choice, to select it for your accommodation. It was my misfortune, perhaps my error, but really cannot be termed my fault that you have been afflicted so strangely. Strangely indeed, said the general, resuming his good temper. 
and I acknowledge that I have no right to be offended with your lordship for treating me like what I used to think myself, a man of some firmness and courage. But I see my post-horses are arrived, and I must not detain your lordship from your amusement. Nay, my old friend, said Lord Woodville, since you cannot stay with us another day, which indeed I can no longer urge, give me at least half an hour more. You used to love pictures, and I have a gallery of portraits, some of them by Van Dyke, representing ancestry to whom this property and castle formerly belonged. I think that several of them will strike you as possessing merit. General Brown accepted the invitation, though somewhat unwillingly. It was evident he was not to breathe freely or at ease till he left Woodville Castle far behind him. He could not refuse his friend's invitation, however, and the less so, that he was a little ashamed of the peevishness which he had displayed towards his well-meaning entertainer. The general, therefore, followed Lord Woodville through several rooms into a long gallery hung with pictures, which the latter pointed out to his guest, telling the names and giving some account of the personages whose portraits presented themselves in progression. General Brown was but little interested in the details which these accounts conveyed to him, they were, indeed, of the kind which are usually found in an old family gallery. Here was a cavalier who had ruined the estate in the royal cause. There a fine lady who had reinstated it by contracting a match with a wealthy roundhead. There hung a gallant who had been in danger for corresponding with the exiled court of St. Germain's. Here one who had taken arms for William at the Revolution. And there a third that had thrown his weight alternately into the scale of Whig and Tory. While Lord Woodville was cramming these words into his guest's ear, against the stomach of his sense, they gained the middle of the gallery, when he beheld General Brown suddenly start and assume an attitude of the utmost surprise, not unmixed with fear, as his eyes were suddenly caught and riveted by a portrait of an old lady in a sock, the fashionable dress of the end of the 17th century. There she, there she is! he exclaimed. There she is, in form and features, though inferior in demoniac expression to the accursed hag who visited me last night. If, if that be the case, said the young nobleman, there can remain no longer any doubt of the horrible reality of your apparition. That is the picture of a wretched ancestress of mine, of whose crimes a black and fearful catalogue is recorded in family history in my charter chest. The recital of them would be too horrible. It is enough to say that in yon fatal apartment incest and unnatural murder were committed. I will restore it to the solitude to which the better judgment of those who preceded me had consigned it, and never shall anyone, so long as I can prevent it, be exposed to a repetition of the supernatural horrors which could shake such courage as yours. Thus the friends, who had met with such glee, parted in a very different mood. Lord Woodville to command the tapestry chamber to be unmantled, and the door built up, and General Brown to seek in some less beautiful country, and with some less dignified friend, forgetfulness of the painful night which he had passed in Woodville Castle. October is such a great month to tell scary stories. Especially as the nights start getting darker, the wind gets colder, you can feel the creepy crawly things going up your back. If you want to tune in to the rest of the stories I have, if you are subscribed to A Cozy Christmas Podcast, this will be a part of the regular feed. And 
you will get it automatically downloaded onto your device as always. As well, it'll be on my website, CozyChristmasPod.com. Well, that's all I have for today, and I'll see you again. Stay tuned and stay alert for the next special episode of Stories for Halloween. And so until next time, remember, there is nothing like the laughter of a child unless it's 1 a.m. and you live alone. Sleep well. Sorry, sorry, sorry.